Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Ever since we've had video games, there have been concerns about the impact on our children. Oh, they're playing too much. Oh, they're not going outside. It's not teaching them anything. I mean, I heard that when I was a kid playing video games. So I think we know now that there are skills that kids can learn and benefit from with some video games. But that doesn't mean that there are not legitimate concerns here, too. Take, for instance, the stories about the online game Roblox. It is incredibly popular, but there are questions. Is it teaching kids valuable STEM skills or is it taking advantage of them by all of the in-game purchases that kids make when using it? Navas Bednar is Executive Director of Public Policy and Digital Society at McMaster University and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So what are the concerns in a game like Roblox? One of the leading concerns with a game like Roblox is that there's this really blurry line between playing the game and building the game because it's kind of an infinite universe. So you mentioned STEM skills, right? You could sort of uh, say that as, as young people play and they're kind of adding to the game and creating little universes and, and, and gameplay uh, that it's very kind of constructive and informative and it is skill building. On the other hand, they're creating a form of value that the company benefits from. Now, there's kind of a microcurrency called Robux. I can't really say pronounce these words very well. So you could also argue that like in this little way, almost like we get uh, compensated by loyalty programs, they're sort of being compensated for this work. But again, the core question is what's work and what's play? And are we normalizing kind of free labor uh, from children in these virtual worlds and dressing it up as play. That's, I think, a really tricky but important question to ask here. Right, because if the video game is reliant upon these kids playing the game as part of their economic model, uh, that that's different than having adults doing it, isn't it? It is, it is. Now, they're not kind of creating the core, you know, structure of the game, um, but we also, you know, there are other policy questions that, that people raise around uh, addictiveness, you know, all sorts of games and social media being designed in ways to kind of hold and absorb our attention. And with this game in particular, we've heard, you know, of course, outlier stories, but of young people, you know, who maybe have trouble sleeping at night or don't sleep at night because they are so locked into playing, etc. So, that's probably not that new in, in the in the world and kind of our, our history of kind of fretting about video games. But I think the way we soft regulate video games tends to be related to violence, right? We sort of tier what's, you know, acceptable by ages. And now the question we have to ask, I think, is about labor and play and where that line is and what's appropriate and what's not. That's a good point, because I think a lot of parents seeing that would say, oh, that's perfectly fine. They're not playing a violent video game. 
you know, and that's parental, that's a parental decision and, and parental discretion. I think, you know, it's also delicate to criticize the game in and of itself. No one wants to be seen as questioning those, that parental oversight and parental decisions. You know, it's, it's a source of joy. It's, it's interesting. There's excitement. There's friendship. And there's, again, some skill building. All of those things are wonderfully, wonderfully positive. It's just that question of, you know, also like social media influencers, right? We ask people to create and create and create and contribute this content. And the remuneration is paltry kind of if at all. So if children, if players are really creating so much value in this game, should they be, should that be recognized in a different way uh, than it is now? Right. Is there any way for even determining that, though, Vast, to determine how much money uh, they're making off of kids playing? I don't know how they would determine. I mean, they could do kind of, I guess, proportion of the game that's created by others. Um, I sort of did this analysis on my blog last year. It might have been two years ago now. I'm so hazy on time. But I looked at existing laws related to child labor right? Provincial laws, uh, global, global laws, and how we're defining work. And I think that some of what takes place in these video game contexts could be construed as work. Now, if the work aspect of playing the game is optional, maybe that's something different, right? If you can play the game without building part of the universe, and you can just navigate and kind of go around, maybe that's kind of a dimension to care about here. But I also think the macro element is When these digital regulation questions come up in a children's context and a gaming context, we might discount them because it seems either playful or minimized or, again, like a space that is kind of softly, gently regulated. Plus, there's a lot of eyes on that street, right? Hmm. Parents, players are thinking about it. But I think we could think about it more. Okay, so then what do parents need to know here? I think parents need to know about that relationship between contributing to the game and receiving the, the Roblox and those, you know, that how that money is used within the game to uh, purchase, you know, little game add-ons, rewards, etc. So again, if young people are being incentivized to build in order to play Um, then that is a relationship we need to be thinking about. And maybe it's about having a conversation about and making sure um, that we're not normalizing, again, what could be construed as free labor. Hmm, Interesting. Vass, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for chatting with me. That's Vass Bednar, Executive Director of Public Policy in Digital Society at McMaster University, raising important concerns there for parents. I think if we, we, we look at the game the kids are playing and, oh, it's just a building game, that's good. Yeah, they should just keep doing it. But maybe we all need to kind of sit down and spend some time playing that game just to see how it works and exactly what is going on there. This is Mornings with Simi. Now let's turn to Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, we don't get a snow day because there's so much for us to talk about. I know we were going to get an update on the whole Surrey policing situation. Well, there's been some snowing on that one, I have to say, over a while. But you interviewed the administrator, the provincial government sent in to try to sort the budget out there yesterday. And he explained something that I didn't 
find Claire up to this point. And he addressed the issue, the accusation, that the Surrey Policing Service, the new one, is over budget. And he explained, yes, of course it is. And the reason it's over budget is very simple. The Surrey, Surrey, with the mayor and her council majority in place, their plan for this year was that the Surrey Police Service would be phased out and and they'd go back to the RCMP. So they only gave the Surrey Police Service a half a year's budget. They ran out of money in July. So, of course, they're over budget because what Surrey was counting on that didn't happen because the province stepped in is, no, 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 they're not going to go back to the RCMP. The province has ordered they continue with the Surrey Police Service. So, of course, the Surrey Police Service needs a top-up to its budget. Uh, When the mayor says they're over budget, yes, they're over budget. But what she's not telling you is that the consequence of the provincial government stepping in and saying you're sticking with the Surrey Police Service is that the they don't have enough money for the year. Yeah, budget, um, the budget ended <laughs> in July. That's why they're over budget. The, they didn't fund it's them past really July. It's really clear to me, Claire, for the first time. And I, I suggest the listener go to the um, NW News Archive and listen to that interview because it was just after 7 o'clock yesterday. Yes. And, you know, I was thinking as I was listening to you talking to Mike Sayre is why doesn't the provincial government let him do the talking? When Mike Farnworth talks, it's a politician battling right. with a politician. But, you know, it's all there. It's clear. And, Simi, I think, I think for the first time I can see the end game on the budget. He's gone to the provincial director of police services and said, you're going to have to step in and settle this thing. And by law, the provincial director of police services can do that. So I think sometime in the next few months, maybe the next few weeks, we're going to get a final budget for Surrey, and it is going to make sure that the Surrey Police Service has the money it needs to run for the year, eventually. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Surrey will presumably be paying for uh, those officers. I don't see an end to the political wrangling over this because you've got two governments pointing at each other and really trying to make sure the other one gets the blame 
for what's going to happen on taxes. But yeah, I mean, I I yes. went, yeah, this Makes finally sense. Right. I see something that I didn't understand there. Yeah, I think they are letting him speak. I think that's why, like we've asked a, a lot of times, this was the first time they had said, yes, he will talk about this. And he explained it very well. It's not a growth budget. They weren't adding officers. It was just attrition, regular part of the planning. Yeah. They are still under the number they're even supposed to have. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, they can't grow. They can't do anything because they can't, they're not budgeted for it. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you get a budget, the thing goes ahead. And, oh, I guess the other thing that became apparent in the interview, though, is that Brenda Locke and the council out there, the reason they haven't accepted the reality that's there is because they still think that their court challenge to this decision will succeed, that the court will agree with Surrey and say, no, 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 you know, you're going ahead uh, with going back to the RCMP. Uh, the Surrey Police Service thing isn't going to happen. Now, you never know what a court's going to do, but I would say the odds makers that I've spoken to that know the law and, and that, they doubt very much that a court is going to step in and reverse the decision that Surrey Council already reversed. They expect that a court will let the thing go ahead. But that's the hesitation. That's really wishful thinking. That's kind of high in the sky. But there's still the question of political blame. And I guess that's the one thing we still don't know, Simi, is what is going to be the tab for this? Will the provincial government's offer of $150 million in transition funding cover all of the costs? Or at the end of the day, will there be a tax hike for Surrey ratepayers that Brenda Locke can blame on the provincial government. That's, that political blame question is still out there. It's the one area of anxiety for New Democrats, because if that's going to happen, they don't want to happen. They don't want it to happen before the provincial election, because right now the New Democrats hold most of the seats in Surrey. And if they were being blamed for a big tax hike out there, uh, that wouldn't be that great for their re-election chances. So there's still a political battle, but I have to say Mike Sayre did a good job of clarifying where the budget battle is headed. Yes, certainly, which may, which I think impacts that property tax hike that the mayor is claiming, right, is yeah. going to happen. And so he's saying they're under budget if you just take yeah. the budget they had for the first yeah. six months. Anyway, we could talk about that all day. We've got more. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt we'll mention it again. I know. And I guess we talked story policing, so we must be able to talk about BC Ferries too, Vaughn. Yeah, BC Ferries, uh, remember when the New Democrats were in opposition and they were always saying, you know, if we ever get into government, we're going to start building BC Ferries here in British Columbia because the jobs will be here and the money will get spent here. And yeah, it might cost a bit more, but think of all the economic benefits. So they're in government. They've taken political control of BC Ferries. And I'm looking at a press release this week. Uh, BC Ferries has awarded a contract to build four new uh, coastal and cl- um, island class ferries. Those are the ones that serve the smaller Gulf Islands, like Gabriola, Quadra. So uh, BC Ferries is awarded uh, contract to build four of them, uh, hybrid ferries, so the new kind of electric ferries. And the winning bidder is uh, a Dutch company that's going to build the ships in Romania. And I haven't heard a word of complaint from the government about it. 
Now they just kind of accepted that that's what's going to happen, even though they now control the ferries. They could have asked for something different. They could have, but did any anybody here locally apply for that? Yeah, this is the re- this is the reality. I mean, there there were no bids from Canadian shipyards. Canadian. Canadian shipyards, I mean, first of all, they're getting a lot of work from the federal government, which does build its ships here in Canada. Um, they are also, you know, they've got, they get service work from BC ferries. But the bottom line is they can't compete. Um, by policy, I'm guessing that the NDP-controlled ferry corporation would have accepted a bid, if there'd been one, from a BC company if it were in, you know, 5 or 10% of the foreign bids, but there weren't any. Uh, you know, the yards here are busy, they don't have the capacity, and they can't really staff themselves up to the level necessary to compete with the overseas builders because they wouldn't get a whole lot of other work. I mean, you can't keep a big shipyard going just on what BC Ferries provides, so... Anyway, um, they're coming from Romania. They join, what, six ships already from Romania. And for the listener who is wondering, Simi, uh, is this going to deal with the problem on the major routes of wait times and cancellations? No, it won't. These are smaller ships. Um, They'll be on the run between Nanaimo and Gabriola Island and between Campbell River and Quadra Island, and they're needed there. But ferries are still several years away from building new ships. Uh, they are, they've asked for expressions of interest. They've said what they want to do. Uh, these will be new ships for the major runs, but I don't think the first ship, I think, will be delivered in the next decade. So you know, we're still away from that. Uh, uh, trivia fans, the last time BC Ferries built uh, a ship... In British Columbia, it was, I believe, the Spirit-class uh, ships. Spirit of Vancouver Island uh, is one of them. Uh, those were actually commissioned by the old social credit government. Really? Remember them? Yeah. Now, those ships, you know, are still in service. Uh, connoisseurs of BC Ferry Service like to get on the Spirit-class ships because they're big. There's plenty of room to move around. They don't feel cramped. Uh, good services, and they're pretty reliable. They're, I have to say, more reliable than the ships that were built in Germany. Those are the ones that keep breaking down and we have trouble with. And uh, I realize, I, I still find it hard to believe, given the worldwide reputation of German engineering, that German-built ships are a problem. I mean, maybe the mistake was not getting... BMW or Audi or Mercedes-Benz to build them. Maybe the Germans quietly contracted them out to somebody, someone else. That's a bit of humor on my part. <laughs> you know Sarcasm, <laughs> but there you go. What's also interesting is, Vaughn, it seems like this would be a good time to be in the shipbuilding industry because yeah. BC Ferries has a capital plan that involves new ships. We talked the other day about Washington State Ferries. So a lot of ferry yeah. systems are looking to upgrade their fleets. They are, and again, you know, the Horgan government initially talked big about a plan that would upgrade the shipyards in British Columbia and allow them to bid on these projects. And the Horgan government hinted that, you know, if the bids came in with 
uh, ballpark. There might be a premium allowed for building here in British Columbia, but none of that happened. And that plan, uh, Oregon government launched it, but I can say, you know, you can look at what they did. It did not take any yard in British Columbia to the level where they were willing to even take the time to bid on this contract. Maybe it'll be different on the larger ships that they're looking for. We don't know where that is yet, but the smaller ships, the Romanians are building them, and uh, they'll transport them over here, and they'll be put into service. Okay. Now, also, before you go, wanted to talk about the Rachel Notley stepping down in Alberta. Yeah, Rachel Notley stepping down in Alberta, and I'm reading all the accolades, and they're well-earned there. She's the first NDP premier of Alberta, and she did change the political culture there. But as a British Columbian, <laughs> my thoughts went back to her rotten relationship with John Horgan. When Horgan was NDP premier of BC, Notley was premier, NDP premier of Alberta, and the two of them had both been staffers in the NDP government here in the 1990s. So you kind of thought, well, they must have some common ground. And they agreed on some things. But of course, Simi, they had a horrible row over the TMX pipeline. Horgan's government decided it would use every tool in the toolbox to stop it and Notley like a good Alberta premier wanted that pre- pipeline built so that dis- that debate got pretty ugly between the two of them at one point uh, as i recall Notley was threatening to boycott British Columbia wine in Alberta liquor stores to punish Horgan for his efforts to frustrate construction of the TMX pipeline Oh, yeah, that got nasty. And, you th- and every time they talked about each other, it, they used very different words. Yeah, they did. My, my favorite moment in it all was Horgan used to try to say, well, you know, I get along with my friend Rachel Notley on other things. And at one point, Notley staff got so mad at Horgan that one of her communications directors gave an interview and said, I want to make it clear he is not, she is not his friend. They are not friends. And I don't think I could think of a case where one premier in Canada had ever unfriended the other. She also had a great line about uh, Horgan's best tool in the toolbox thing. She said Horgan's toolbox turned out to be made not by Black & Decker or DeWalt, but by Fisher Price. <laughs> Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Sid. That's Vaughn Palmer there for the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. It is another snow day out there. Public schools are closed right across Metro Vancouver. Uh, Most independent schools, I'd say, are closed as well. Most post-secondary institutions are closed. In fact, I don't know of any that are open. But for the complete list, if you're wondering about your school, your institution, uh, check out globalnews.ca and our school closures list there. We're continuing to update that. And, of course, with the forecast as well. We'll be talking to Mark Madriga coming up about that extended weather forecast, what you can really expect today. Right now, we're going to check in with our Scott Schatz. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am excellent. Thank you. Great. Even though it's a snow day and it's going to be mayhem throughout the city once again. That makes our job more interesting. It sure does. Yes, yes. it does. <laughs> That's true. Uh, speaking of our job, uh, one of the things that 
I, I found this recent sort of trend, right? So people are always trying to like improve their their position at their job or their relationships. We're kind of on this big like self-help kick over the last couple of years and stuff. And a new trend that is set to be coming is the idea of sharing your secrets. That's The whole thought is essentially that if you open up and you uh, start to appear as more um, authentic and le- having less to hide to the people in your life, that they will see you as a more wholesome person and start to like you more. This idea of sharing secrets is becoming a thing. So I spoke with a secrets expert. His name is Amit Kumar, and he is the professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Texas. And I asked him about this, saying, like, should we really be doing this? I should just be going around to the people that I care about and that I want to have deeper relationships with and just, like, start telling them my secrets? It feels kind of scary. Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the things that's true about people's lives is that when they have secrets that can carry a psychological burden with that, um, that concealing negative information from others can affect our well-being negatively. And so we might actually benefit from revealing some of these secrets uh, to others. Um, of course, there are reasons why we don't, but uh, our research finds that those reasons might be a little bit misguided. It sort of sounds like you're suggesting that maybe our secrets aren't as impactful or, or they shouldn't be as worry-creating as they are. People definitely do have worries. So the reason, or at least one of the reasons that people keep this negative information about themselves secret from others is in part to protect their reputations. We're worried about what other people will think of us or how they'll judge us. Um, But our data suggests that the concerns that people have about revealing this negative information are sort of systematically miscalibrated. That is, people think that they're going to be judged more harshly than they really are when they actually reveal information like this um, compared to when we're just imagining how these interactions will go. And so those mistaken beliefs can create um, a barrier to, to greater transparency in our relationships with others. I think one of the things that's important here is, is sort of understanding, well, why are we so worried um, when maybe we shouldn't be? And uh, our research shed some light on that. So part of the reason that folks tend to be overly worried about revealing this kind of negative information is when we're a potential revealer, we tend to really focus on the negative aspects of the information we're conveying, but there's something that we don't fully take into account, and that's that there are also positive qualities associated with the act of revelation. So people actually see you as being open and honest, and those are good things. So Revealing this negative information, of course, does communicate some of this negative content that you're thinking about, but it also communicates positive attributes like trust and vulnerability. And so um, what we're focusing on, this disclosure itself, is different from what recipients of that information are likely to focus on. They focus more broadly on both. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The content being revealed and the decision to reveal this information. The whole topic around secrets is really quite interesting. There used to be this almost like nobility and like having a secret and being a good secret keeper. Um, do you think that that's gone away? I do think that people value honesty and transparency and openness. And uh, particularly when other people are evaluating us, they're thinking about those sorts of attributes. And those might not be the attributes that we're thinking about when we're thinking about how we're going to be judged by them in these contexts. Is it as simple as just sort of saying like, hey, guys, I I think I need to tell you something. Or do you kind of wait until it kind of comes up uh, kind of naturally or organically? Like, how does one take steps to being more more open and honest with people that you work with? I think that the, there's insights from what people are evaluating. And so the more that you seem open and honest and transparent rather than trying to hide some aspect of the secret that you're sharing, it's more likely that you'll be evaluated more positively. What we do look at is sort of a broad range of relationships types. So we have people revealing these secrets to strangers. We have people revealing these secrets to their spouses. Uh, uh, So lots of different types of relationships. Um, Across those relationships, we consistently find that people overestimate how harshly they'll be judged for revealing this negative information to others. And so one of the simplest suggestions is to try it. It turns out that it might uh, go better than you expect. Focusing on how exactly you do it could be another barrier that stands in the way of, uh, of doing it in the first place. That's Amit Kumar, professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Texas. So, Simi, let's go deep. Tell no. me a secret. Tell no. me a secret. <laughs> well, I was listening to that and I thought, mm, no, I don't but, think so. But why? I don't think why? I need to. I don't need like I like you, Scott. But I like the people that I know. I don't I don't think I need to know their deepest, darkest secrets. But the thing that that we've established there is that. The th- you're worried about it. I'm not. I'm. I'm not like assuming that of you. But let's say you're worried about it. That I'm going to judge you. I'm not. We worry that the person no, that we're telling the secret to is going to judge us. I think. Why I, would I need to tell you? I why think, would Why would I even open myself up to that potential judgment? I just need to not tell you anything. Because Simi, it's going to grow our relationship and make us better coworkers. Huh. You're my coworker, though, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> we're not friends. I think we're friends. Sure. <laughs> oh, that's an awkward conversation to have on the air, but I'm just saying I've worked with a lot of people over the years. Would it make you feel better I, I if I told the secret first? No, it would not actually make me feel better <laughs> because that's not going to make me say anything. I just not, I'm not sure we always need to share. Yeah, I think that we're probably too far in the direction of not sharing, and we don't need oh, to share everything, I but I think, we can, I think we can pivot it back a little, a little bit. swing the pendulum yeah, back the other way yeah. a little bit. It doesn't have hmm. to be a serious thing. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be Here, I'll me. go first, okay? Yesterday, yesterday, Simi, I ate the last cookie that you brought in. I knew that already, Scott. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> I knew, when all the cookies, secret. <laughs> all the cookies were gone, and I walked by them, <laughs> and I looked around the room and thought, well, it had to be Scott, because he was the only person who was in the vicinity at that time. So, Also, it's okay. Go ahead. 
eat the See, last cookie. That's what I bring them right? for. They're there to be eaten. I don't need to be worried about keeping secrets from you. Maybe we need to redefine what the word secret is because I don't consider that a secret. Maybe that's just a bit of a revelation or... Yeah, and I think the things that we keep secret are things that we think we should be ashamed of, you know? Like I eat too many cookies at breakfast, you know? I should save <laughs> some for the I should save yeah. some for the other people in the office. I will say this. I brought in a dozen cookies and they were all gone by 8 a.m. So you're right. We probably do eat too many cookies here uh, in the morning. But Scott, th- you've given me something to think about, Scott. Perfect. That's Thank my goal. Thank you for that. Yes, that is our Scott Shad. This is Mornings with Simi. Provincial government's new housing rules are are going to bring a lot of changes, but it does depend on the community that you live in. Each city, you see, has the ability to use the rules how they want. And in Kelowna, that means, right now it looks like anyway, an end to most short-term rentals. That's right. In Kelowna, where many people go to vacation, probably stay in a short-term rental, Kelowna has voted to eliminate most of them, including those on Airbnb. So why would they take this step? And aren't they concerned about the impact this could have on tourism? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Tom Dias, who's the mayor of Kelowna and voted in favor of these changes. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Thank you for your time and good morning. Good morning. So why did you vote for this? Why did you think this was uh, important? Well, I, I think it goes back to initially when we started um, looking at short-term rentals, and it was something that we had asked staff to start to look into for us back um, early into 2023. So there was a fair bit of public engagement that we went through, and they also looked at the details around it. And we had about 2,400 um, short-term rentals within our community. Um, 1,100 of them were um, licensed legal. Um, and so there was a concern with regards to the number of ones that we had in the community and the number of ones that were operating and how they were affecting the neighborhoods of our community. So when staff went back, they looked at the 2,400, the 1,100 that were legal, and then we knew that we had about um, 500 of them that would fit into the new provincial rules and regulations with regards to being in primary residences. So what we looked at, what we did is we then basically kind of just whittled it down from there to allow a grandfathering of the 500 that would fit into the current rules of the provincial government being in principal residences. Um, and then basically said we would hold with those amounts and just not extend any more licensing. So it wasn't that we, um, you know, we totally eliminated from the community. We looked at what was able to be uh, operational under provincial legislation and said that we would not now issue any new license under those. Um, we would allow the existing uh, grandfathering of those residences to be in place um, and then potentially look at coming back to the province and um, ask for some exceptions, being a tourist area, in areas that were initially designated for um, short-term rentals. Okay, so even though there will be some that will be grandfathered in, that's a small number compared to those that are operating now. Is that right? It is. It's a, it, is a, it is a small number, but it's in line with what the provincial um, rules and regulations are because out of the 1,100 that we had that were um, operating legally, um, 
there would have been a good number of those that would not have met the criteria right. of the provincial legislation at this time. So do you think, Mayor Dias, that this will improve the rental situation, like for long-term renters? Uh, no. Um, uh, you know, to be totally honest with you, I think from a tourism standpoint, <clears throat> it is a little more difficult um, for long-term rentals. And I think that's part of what is, will you know we will need to work out as as municipalities and as a province over the next little while it will provide visitors the certainty that when they when they are booking something um online through the rbo or um that uh, it is a legal unit and the unit is legal and it and it is um registered but from a standpoint of volume of number of units available it will be, you know, definitely less uh, throughout our community and throughout uh, many communities throughout the province. Right. So what is the vacancy rate like there? Does, does Kelowna struggle to find, uh, you know, accommodations for people who are long-term renters? That was one of the, one of the um, items that was definitely looked at and put into place why um, staff came back to us with some of these changes because there is the just the availability of long-term rental within our community is very difficult for individuals to find and being a tourism oriented uh, being a tour- tourism oriented um, uh, um, city the other part of it was for the workers who are working within those industries to be able to find accommodation so that um, the tourism businesses were able to stay open the hours that they needed to stay open. We saw a lot of that happening last uh, last summer and through, uh, through the busier, busier tourism times. So that was one of the steps, making more units available for long-term rental for members of our community was, was an important part of the decision-making. Okay, and do you believe this will make a difference? Well, we, you know, when you look at the math of knowing that there was 2,400 or 2,500 units that were being used for short-term rental before, um, you know, a good number of them legally, you know, and a lot of complaints that we continually receive as as council and as the city from people who are being disturbed by a lot of these units. Um, And we're now down to... 500 um it, it it would it would you would assume that definitely there is the now the availability of more units for long-term rental and we are seeing a little bit of that uh you know with um with staff just looking online and checking units coming up for rental a little bit more we are seeing a little bit more of that i think that there'll be a number of scenarios that will potentially work itself out over the next year or next couple of, couple of years, and this may be revisited once again um, on how, you know how it looks within our community, and do we potentially go back and open up the opportunity for more licenses to be held in areas that is allowable within the provincial rules? That may may take place, uh, but. Um, that will uh, th- that's going to be a little bit of a process. Right. Okay. So, what is enforcement? Uh, what's it like right now? And and will you have to add to that moving forward? Well, and I mean that that is a, a great question because again, that was one of the one of the reasons why we looked at changing uh, because the amount of time that our bylaw per you know with the city was involved with going to 
residents that um, were uh, Airbnbs and individuals who held properties. And a number of them did not even reside within our community. They resided in other communities, but they rented the property out within our community. And so bylaw was going back and forth. And now you're dealing with the people who have rented the property as opposed to the actual owners of the property. So it becomes a little difficult to enforce. Um, the provincial enforcement unit that they are going to establish, I believe, sometime in the fall of this year, will definitely, you know, we'll be looking forward to that. But also the fines with the increase in the fines um, and what they've gone up to now being a daily fine of up to $3,000. Um, I think collectively, um, with all of those items coming into play over the next little while, it will assist with the enforcement on municipalities also, and that everything has to be on the online platform with a registered, um, you know, license to it, mm-hmm. and that they'll be monitoring that. I think a combination of those items will will help. Okay, and so you talked about the timeline, the process for this. So, what is the timeline? How, how you know over which you foresee this happening? Is it over the next year? And in the meantime, does that mean that you know there's going to be a kind of a gray area for some of these to keep operating? There, there is. I mean, and for us to look at putting in business licenses and the business licenses that we offered to um, those outside of the outside of the 500 um, to operate until you know the rules come into effect on a May 1st. So, um, and then that they receive their licenses on a prorated basis until that period of time. And then after that, um, it would then be effective for just the ones that we have legally. Um, allowed to operate within this community and then for those under exemptions is there the opportunity for the province to consider and look at I know we're not the only community Um, I'm certain there'll be other communities within the Okanagan and I've heard of communities on the island also looking at uh, requesting some possible exemptions uh, for specific tourism areas so can they be looked at prior to the summer months Um, we hope, uh, but um, there is that definite element of uncertainty. I think this is some of the, as our as our you know planning and building department say, these changes are some of the some of the biggest changes they've seen um, come through in in this particular area in in quite a while. Wow! Thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you for your time. That's Tom Dice, who's the mayor of Kelowna. Big changes coming to uh, short-term rental regulations in that community. They have voted to well, dramatically restrict the number of allowable legal short-term rentals uh, versus what they have right now. Now, if you think about that, Kelowna is a vacation destination uh, for people all over Western Canada. That is going to limit kind of the offerings there, but this is a, a process, as the mayor mentioned, that is going to take some time to sort out to what it means. But in the meantime, what it's going to mean is that there is going to be a reduction in the number of short-term rentals available there in order to help provide uh, more homes and housing for people who work and live in Kelowna, too. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know that Canada is about to launch a federal dental plan? I mean, actually, enrollment for this plan started last month and you might be eligible. I mean, do you know enough about it? Does the plan even go far enough? Well, that's what we're going to talk about now. David McDonald is with us, a senior economist at the Centre for Policy Alternatives, who has been looking into this new dental plan. David, thank you for being here. 
Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So how does this plan work? What is this? Yeah, so we're actually in phase two of a three-phase plan. Uh, The first phase of the plan was for families with young children under the age of 12. Uh, They could get a set amount of money as $650 twice uh, if you didn't have dental insurance and if your family income was under $90,000. And we're moving into the second phase, which is a big transition. The second phase is is already underway. It actually started uh, at the end of last year. Uh, Some older seniors can apply right now to get uh, this federal dental uh, coverage. And by June of this year, all seniors, uh, all children under 18, as well as all Canadians with disabilities, will be eligible for the plan. And so you, you go and apply for the plan, and in essence, you get um, an insurance card. It's actually it's actually issued by by Sun Life, so it's kind of like private dental insurance. Uh, and then by 2025, that's the third phase of the plan, where there's no more age restriction. Everybody is allowed in, but again, the big proviso being that your family income can't be over ninety thousand uh, dollars. And so, this is going to be a lot of people. I mean, you know, there's almost 13 million people in Canada. Uh, including young children that don't presently have dental insurance, say through their work, for instance. Uh, this plan will will ensure that about 10 million Canadians are eligible for additional benefits as a result of this plan. But uh, the proviso is is that there's about four and a half million people who won't be eligible even when the plan is fully implemented. This is the uh, adults, children, and so on, because the family income is over $90,000, and as a result, they become ineligible for this new federal plan. Okay, so is your feeling then that this doesn't go far enough? Because you talked about the people it does cover, but it also doesn't cover a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, if you think of uh, two parents working uh, at jobs making $45,000 a year, that's a pretty modest sum in Canada these days. Uh, and if you had that family, they would be too rich to access this plan. They'd be making too much money. They'd hit that cap of $90,000 because it's family income, not an individual income. Uh, and so what that means is there are a lot of people uh, of still pretty modest means who won't gain access to this plan. Um, you know, the, the bigger issue here is that this actually isn't how we do Medicare in Canada, right? No one's checking your, uh, you know, no one's checking your income from last year when you go to the doctor or checking your tax form when you go to the hospital. And if you make too much, then you're going to have to pay out of pocket for, you know, your kid's broken arm. That's not actually how we do Medicare. It's universal. Everybody gets access. Um, this is probably one of the biggest expansions in Medicare in decades. And it's a big expansion. A lot of folks will benefit. Um, but we need to make sure that this isn't some sort of a precedent so that other expansions in Medicare, like, say, the Pharmacare plan, where we're expecting details on that. So this would be kind of insurance for um, prescribed uh, pharmaceuticals if you don't have insurance already. Um, you know, you could imagine something similar there where all of a sudden, depending on what service you're getting, maybe you're still paying out of pocket, maybe you're not, depends on your income and your tax form from last year. Um, as opposed to the general Medicare plan, which uh, it's just universal. And so I think it right. starts to set up a dangerous precedent. Okay, so it's a difficult time, though, right? Because this isn't technically a federal government. Uh, this wasn't a liberal government issue. This is a result of the, them negotiating with the NDP. Quite right, quite right. So this is part of their plan with the NDP, and uh, they agreed to it, the dental care plan, uh, and they they put it in place. And so, you know, we're we're in the process of rolling it out. It's very much... 
still under development in that sense. Like we're only just starting phase two. We're not even at the final phase. These, you know, the implementation timelines have changed a couple times already. And so it's very much under, you know, it, it's still it's still working its way through the system. So it's absolutely something that we could change. I mean, you could imagine a phase four of the plan, say in 2026, where you remove this income uh, restriction. That would be something that would be straightforward and it'd be easier for folks to get into the plan because, you you know, you don't get it just because you have a provincial uh, health card. That doesn't that that's not what's going to get you there. Uh, you'll have to get a totally separate card uh, that'll be issued by the federal government and Sun Life by going and applying separately. And they're going to check your tax records to see whether you qualify. Right. It's a tough time, though, David, isn't it, to tell the federal or ask the federal government to expand something when you've got all these businesses already pressuring them to forgive these SIBA loans? That doesn't look like it's going to happen either. Yeah. I mean, you know, how, so there is some costing in the paper to see, like, how much additional money would it cost to, to, to fund everybody so that, uh, you know, you weren't checking people's tax forms to see whether they get dental care. Uh, it'd be worth about $1.5 billion a year. Um, now, the federal government has uh, raised more money over the last couple of years. They levied a special corporate surtax on the banks because they're making so much money during the pandemic and, and in the inflationary period, but it was only on the banks. And so, you know, you could imagine a time where they expanded that to other sectors that are making big money on inflation. You know, corporate profits have gone way up as they jack prices up and, and keep some of that as profits. Uh, you could expand that, say, the oil and gas industry or the grocery store industry to raise some additional money. Uh, and that's the sort of thing where you could, instead of money, you know, these inflation dollars just flowing to shareholders of these companies, uh, they could flow to something useful like a dental care plan. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's David McDonald, Senior Economist at the Centre for Policy Alternatives. The Canadian Dental Plan is actually, as he points out, in the second phase of enrollment. All you have to do is Google it, uh, you know, Canadian Dental Plan. You can go to the federal government's website there and find out if you're eligible and then how to enroll. Uh, But they're arguing at the Centre for Policy Alternatives that more people need to be enrolled in this or the cap needs to be extended because right now it caps it at people making more than $90,000 a year, no longer eligible. And that in this day and age, as David points out, really isn't that much for people who are struggling to get by. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. At that weather forecast, it is kind of changing. We've got more snow in the forecast starting around lunchtime today. Potential for freezing rain this afternoon. So I think it's a good thing. Many people have heeded those calls to perhaps stay off the roads today, although there are still a lot of problems on the roads. We'll continue to have that forecast for you and what is going on out there. Just keep it tuned in here for the very latest. Uh, Right now, though, we're going to talk about the fact that today is the deadline day for businesses who owe money to the federal government with those SIBA loans. Hundreds of thousands of businesses signed up for that program during the pandemic, and the deadline to repay has been moved a couple of times already, but still so many businesses say they need more time. More than half, though, have paid the money back, so should there be another extension? Joining us now to talk about that is Jigmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do you think there should be an extension? Yeah, we've been calling for one for a long time. And the reason why we're calling for one is is to put into context, today's going to be a really difficult day for a lot of those local shops and restaurants that make up the identity of the communities that we call home. These are the the local mom and pop shops that really add vibrancy to our communities. And they've said very clearly, 
through the the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, which is the the organization that represents these these independent small businesses, saying we are in a tough position for many reasons. The pandemic impacts haven't really been. We haven't gone back to pre-pandemic levels for a lot of businesses. On top of that, there's an economic slowdown. Lots of different factors. They're saying we need we need a, a little relief again. We need a little bit more time, and we've been saying yes, let's give them that relief. These are the small businesses, and we see uh, the Liberal government and Justin Trudeau jump into action to provide billions of dollars additionally for the TMX project, which is a project I've long said was, was not the right thing to be spending billions of dollars on, but doesn't hesitate there, but does hesitate when it comes to the what we call the, the engine of our economy, the backbone of our economy, small businesses. Okay, so what kind of extension are, are we talking about here? Are you saying maybe they should be forgiven, these loans? Well, we've focused on what the ask has been directly from the businesses, which is an additional one year. Uh, that's what they've been asking for. Uh, in fact, the premiers, not just of the provinces, but also the territories have also come out in support of that call. And so that's that's what we're asking for. That's what we've been asking for since the summer, to push it back for one additional year. Right. There doesn't seem to be a willingness to do that, though. There haven't been any signals about that from the government, has there? No, no, and that's fair. And today is the day, actually. Today is the is the deadline. So we've not heard anything from the government. Uh, they've been pretty firm on this, and I think it's the wrong position to take. And particularly, we've been highlighting the contrast, how quick they act when it comes to giving really the the super rich, the large corporations, the projects like TMX or the outsourcing where there's hundreds of millions of dollars that went to large consulting firms. They don't hesitate when it comes to spending money there but when it comes to something as vital, I would say, and as important as those small businesses that make up our communities, they're, they're saying no. And I think that's where the Liberal government and Justin Trudeau are wrong. What are you hearing from businesses about the challenges that they're facing? Well, they're saying that uh, when we took this help, we needed it during the pandemic. And, and for many businesses, they, uh, because of very important and, and necessary health measures, weren't able to operate at the levels where they were used to. We think about restaurants that had to reduce the size of their of their seating plan in terms of who could sit, sit at the restaurants often could not serve people in the restaurant for periods of time. So they were impacted. Retail owners are also impacted in, in similar ways where there were limitations on people coming into the store. After that, after we've gone past that time period, we haven't yet returned to that same level. And now they're saying on top of all that, we're feeling that there's this economic downturn that's slowing things down and people are less likely to be in a position to spend. And we know that that's also a factor. So we're saying, given all this, we're just not in a position that we would have otherwise been in to pay this back. And we just need a little time to get things back where they, where they should be and, and hopefully where things will be uh, shortly. Is there a compromise, do you think, that is available here? Is it possible to lower the interest rate for making that repayable or something? Well, I mean... The, the Liberal government didn't offer anything, and, and I think that would have been at least uh, something that, that businesses could have decided, hey, is there an option for us? Is there an alternative? But nothing was suggested. Uh, I would be open to any relief. I've been echoing the calls that, that these local businesses have said, hey, we need more time. But uh, anything would have helped, and nothing was offered by the, by the Prime Minister. Okay, so do you expect any changes at all? Do you expect this to come up today in Ottawa? Well, we are continuing to keep that pressure going. I've been doing uh, interviews on this topic. We've written letters. We've been directly putting pressure on the Prime Minister's office and Justin Trudeau. So 
so far, it does not look like there's any any movement. Uh, today is the last day, so today is a deadline, and uh, so far, we've not heard anything from 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 Justin Trudeau. All right, we'll see what happens. Listen, thank you so much for coming on today to talk about it. Thanks so much. That's Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP, talking about today being deadline day uh, for the businesses that have not yet repaid uh, the the Canada Emergency Bank Account program that they had, the SIBA loans that they took during the pandemic. 900,000 businesses did sign up for this during the pandemic. More than half, though, have paid the money back. And here's the thing. Uh, there is like a bit of a forgiveness aspect to this. So SIBA does allow for forgiveness of up to $20,000 if, though, a good chunk of it is paid, repaid by the deadline and businesses unable to pay can can get a loan, you know, about 5% interest to repay that back. But essentially, you do have to be paying a chunk of it in order to qualify for some forgiveness in that. Now, that still leaves an awful lot of businesses out in the cold here. According to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, they believe that thousands of these businesses will face bankruptcy or closure as a result of this. And they are also urging the government to extend the, de- the deadline here, saying that there are ongoing financial challenges Challenges. And a lot of these are, as Jagmeet Singh pointed out there, you know, your local kind of mom and pop shops, uh, restaurants, bars, you know, pubs, that kind of thing too. Uh, so if you're a business owner out there that has struggled with this, let us know. I mean, today is the deadline. What are you going to do if you owe that money? Have you taken out a loan to repay it back? Are you hoping that there will be a last minute reprieve? And to be honest, it doesn't sound like that is coming. The Prime Minister has been adamant in saying that, you know, it's time to end pandemic supports and move forward from that. So what are businesses supposed to do? You can email me your thoughts to me at cknw.com. Should businesses be cut some slack on this? Should the deadline be extended again? Or do you think, no, it's time to move on from that? Call or text our buzz line to 604-331-2899.